Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, August 15th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope you all had a great weekend and are off to a good start on this Monday. Now let's get right to the headlines impacting people in New Mexico right now. In a year of historic wildfires in New Mexico, we've learned the cause of the only deadly fire in our state this year. An investigation has determined the McBride fire in Riodoso started after a tree fell onto power lines. The McBride fire destroyed more than 200 homes and killed an elderly couple trying to evacuate their home about four months ago. According to reporting from the Albuquerque Journal, the New Mexico Energy, Minerals, and Natural Resources Department found wind gusts of up to 80 miles an hour toppled a 49-foot-tall, drought-stressed tree on April 12th. That caused electrical lines to arc and ignite the fire. PNM has denied any fault or wrongdoing, saying the tree that struck those lines was located outside the company's right-of-way. New Mexico is calling for proposals to be funded with the recent $10 million settlement tied to the 2015 Gold King mine spill. The state and the federal government reached the agreement in June. The state's Office of Natural Resources trustee will now consider applications for projects that would benefit things like farming, outdoor recreation, or natural resources in the northwestern region of the state. Priority will be given to projects that are ready to go and that could be completed in a few years or less. The 2015 spill released about 3 million gallons of wastewater from the inactive mine, sending toxic chemicals south through the Navajo Nation and the San Juan and Animas rivers. Friday on our show, we dug into several other top stories, including the arrest and the murders of four Albuquerque men. Later this week, Jean Grant will sit down for a discussion with Sami Assad. She's a human rights activist and organizer in the Albuquerque area. That interview is set for this Wednesday at noon on our New Mexico in Focus Facebook page. It will be live. We're looking forward to some perspective on how the Muslim community is working through this horrific situation and trying to heal. Another topic we got into last week on the show was the return to the classroom. Districts like Albuquerque Public Schools are set for a full year of learning without any mask requirements. But that's not the only thing on the minds of parents as they send their kids away. Gene talks through all of it with our line opinion panel for the week. It's Jessica Ansuras, news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus, attorney Laura Sanchez, and former state representative Dan Foley. Here's Gene. We put the question out to our social media followers this week asking, What's at the top of mind for parents heading into school this year? Sadly, and understandably, many said security. Is there, now Jessica, is there any fear that students will be the same, in the same mindset? I've always wondered about this. You know, I think that stu- the kids feed off of what their parents and the adults around them yep. um, are thinking and feeling. So I think that if you go to any school in the state of New Mexico, elementary, middle or high school, private or public, and you ask these kids, you know, what is your biggest thoughts on the upcoming year? You'll probably likely get the response that, hey, am I safe coming to school? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not ignorant. They they see um the news they they see what's going on um online i'm sure that many especially at the high school level have that concern um you know i had a conversation though with a with a parent just the other day um, about this very same topic and it was striking to me that her response was like you know i don't want my kids school to become a prison i don't want it to be on lockdown with cameras and gates and fences and guards um that are armed Mm -hmm. but if that's what it takes to keep my kids safe then that's the way that we should that's those are the measures we should take wow anything local for you down there of note for security particularly for schools or (laughs) 
Yeah, definitely. So we were watching um, Carlsbad Police Department with the Eddy County Sheriff's Office the other day conduct this really massive um, drill for um, active shooters at our at our high school. Um, You know, and then naturally we started asking questions. Well, what are we doing this this year that might be new or different to keep people safe? Um, And a couple of different things of of interest. they are, when I say lockdown, I really literally mean locking down um, schools. Gates are closed, doors are locked. You have to go through like three people before you can even get a, in a front door of wow. one of our local schools here. Mm-hmm. Um, over in you know my hometown of Loving, if you're going to go pick up your kid um, or if you're going to have somebody pick up your kid for you, you have to have a little thing on your windshield that says you're authorized to. In Alamogordo, kids are wearing IDs with all the pertinent information, um, just another measure to keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And of course, I think everybody here might have heard of what's happening over in Las Cruces where parents are being asked to volunteer to basically be the eyes and ears on campus um, in situations where schools either don't have the personnel or don't have the funds to add that additional security. Um, They're being proactive and saying, hey, you want to secure your school? You want to secure your kid? Come help us. Help us do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jess, uh, Jess, I'm sorry. Jess was just speaking. Laura, sorry. Uh, Albuquerque Public Schools says it's been adding fencing, locks, camera systems, you know, more incident training for students and, you know, all this kind of thing. I'm interested in your take just hearing what Jessica just mentioned about what this means for the environment of, of learning, so to speak. Well, you know, we live in a completely different time, certainly than when any of us went to school. Um, I'm making mm-hmm. assumptions here, Jessica, but <laughs> I mean, when I was, you know, when I was growing up and I was, I loved going to school. I loved, the, I couldn't even sleep the night before the first day of school because I was so excited about yeah. You know my new class and my and my classmates and just getting back into it, and um, you know being afraid for myself, physical safety, uh, or being afraid of a shooter was just never even on you know possibility. It wasn't even in the, in the realm of reality of something that I might be afraid of. Um, and so we have students now that in the last few years have had to deal with so many changes, whether it's from you know COVID or reading about you know active shooters or a student bringing a gun to school and having an incident. So I think a lot of the, you know, we've, unfortunately, we've had to deal with um, a lot of these incidents and schools are reacting as best they can. So I think anxiety is, is at a fever pitch right now for mm-hmm. students and teachers, as well as, as parents. I mean, I think everybody in the school environment, um, it, it creates a, a level of anxiety that is very different from anything we experienced when we were students. That's right. Um, that being said, I appreciate what Jessica said that, you know, students do tend to feed off of what parents or what adults are doing. It's important for all of us to kind of take a deep breath and have a little bit more, um, you know, a sense of, you know, of calm when we deal with some of this and, and just be able to explain to students, um, you know, why these measures are being taken. It's for their own protection, for their own safety. The drills are important. All of that sort of thing, I think, is, is an important thing to have a conversation about. It provides an opportunity to communicate with students about why it's important to um, take these measures seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of us, I think, can, can do our part to, I think, you know, and you, you hear this all over, not just in the school context, but, you know, public transportation, other places. If you see something, say something. And that's something that's really right. important that we all should be taking into consideration so that we can try to uh, address things um, proactively instead of reacting to things. Mm-hmm. Good point there. Hey, Dan, another big change will be, it's interesting to even say this out loud, a year without mask restrictions. Uh, will this finally be a, a big step towards kids re-socializing in a healthier way and maybe helpful to get past all this other stuff we're talking about here? 
Yeah, I mean, you hope so. I, I think, you know, listening to everything that we're talking about and all the, the new stuff and, and what we're talking about yet, you know, we're not talking about the fact that 76% of fourth graders are not proficient in reading in New Mexico, 79% of eighth graders are not proficient in math in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do we stop this consistent perpetual problem in our education system. And I don't think it, we do that by saying, hey, we're going to tighten the campus. We're going to go through all these active shooter drills. We're going to make it harder for you to get on campus or bring cupcakes or you got to wear a special tag. At the end of the day, 76% of fourth graders are not proficient in reading and 79% of eighth graders are not proficient in math. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're destined to keep producing the same things over and over again. And I, I get frustrated that safety is clearly important. But if you look at the if you look at the likelihood of a student in public school in New Mexico being involved in one of these situations, truly life-threatening situations, it's higher today than it was 20 years ago. I don't disagree with that. But I think which which should we be focusing on the fact that they you can't read and can't do math or the fact that we're building all these fences and doing all this additional security stuff. And at the end of the day, kids still can't read, still mm -hmm. kid, kids still can't get math. Kids still aren't graduating. We have kids dying at record rates. I mean, we're we're you know, we're worse at teen deaths per 100,000. We're at 37 now at teen deaths per 100,000. We're up from 36 percent. So, I mean, it's it's a it's a horrible situation that I think all these other scenarios, we just kind of forget um, what's the root of a lot of the problems in our state. And that is the stuff that I just talked about. Mm -hmm. Jessica, well, again, not mutually exclusive. I just want to say like, Please. you know, keeping students safe and, you know, having a high expectation in terms of teaching and learning, those are not mutually exclusive things. And I think that, you know, the advantage, I appreciate that Jessica's on here and actually Dan too, because, you know, we can provide a perspective from other parts of the state. Mm -hmm. Smaller school districts have a real challenge, I think, in this situation, in this environment, because they they have a shortage of, of teachers and, and other school personnel. I mean, it's just harder to find people in rural areas to, you know, that are, that are able to work in these in these um, schools. Mm -hmm. But then also, you know, bigger school districts like APS have more resources. They just have more ability to get. I mean, not that they're sort of flush with money either, but they have more resources. They have more. Um, personnel who can do, you know, be interchangeable in terms of their role. Mm -hmm. In smaller school districts, you're really, you know, one person may be the, you know, the principal, the administrator, the superintendent that, you know, provide school bus guidance, driver. School guidance, yeah, bus driver, whatever it is. And that means that those schools have a harder time, I think, with delivering the services that they're that they're supposed to deliver, Fair point. teaching and yeah. learning, and then also being able to address this school safety issue. I appreciate the distinction. It is different for the smaller districts, for sure. Thank you all for that discussion. Thank you, Gene, and thanks to our panelists from this past week. Now, if you're a science nerd, you're going to love this next segment. Gene was pretty interested about the new images from the James Webb Space Telescope that NASA recently released. If you haven't seen them yet, I promise you they're nothing short of mind-blowing. I'm not just saying that. They're incredible images. There is a link in the description of this podcast episode if you haven't seen them yet. These are the first color images from the most powerful space telescope in the world. I'm not going to pretend like I understand what these pictures are showing, but Gene's guest definitely does. Dr. Diana Dragomir is a professor of astronomy and physics at the University of New Mexico. She explains what these new images contain and why it's so important that we're finally seeing them. Well, there's no doubt you've heard about the amazing, we're seeing the amazing photos that are coming in from the James Webb Space Telescope. 
over the past few weeks since middle of July. We're going to talk with somebody now from UNM. There's been a couple of UNM folks involved with this program. Dr. Diana Dragomir is with us, though. She's a professor in the UNM Department of Physics and Astronomy. She's earned a PhD in physics from the University of British Columbia in Canada, and most recently was a NASA Hubble Fellow at MIT. Um, her research focuses on the demographics and atmospheres of exoplanets. We're going to talk about exoplanets in a second. Smaller than Neptune, and she studies them with NASA's TESS, Hubble, and JWST space programs. Thank you very much for joining us, Diana. I, I really appreciate it. I have to ask you straight up, how exciting is it for you to be involved with what's become a just a mind-blowing situation for, for folks, whether in the business or regular citizens? Everyone's excited about this. For web especially, yeah, it's it's really exciting. So I have to say that I am scientifically kind of easing into it mm -hmm. um, because some of the data that I'll be working with comes in later. But um, doing some of these outreach events has really gotten me kind of even more excited than I was initially. It's, it's a great way to kind of make sure I'm keeping up with everything. And also it's kind of forcing me to go outside my field and learn, ah. you know, not just about exo what stuff uh, Web is doing for exoplanets, but what it's doing for the universe and just galaxy and understanding galaxies and the history of the universe. Mm -hmm. So all of that is super fun. Uh, and yeah, I look forward to sharing some of that with you. I love it. By the way, folks, you should know, according to NASA, JWST involved over 300 universities, organizations, and companies across 29 U.S. states and 14 countries, particularly our friends at the European Space Agency uh, and the French. And it's interesting. Um, explain to folks your end of the world when it comes to what uh, James Webb is all about. What are you focusing on at UNM and, and, and how do you do it? Yeah, so um, I, like you said earlier, right, I work with exoplanets, so I spend a lot of my time searching for new planets around other stars. An exoplanet is a planet around another star than the sun. Um, and then trying to measure everything we can about those exoplanets, mm -hmm. including understanding their atmospheres, right? So with Webb, what we're doing is um, we're really getting a look into the atmospheric composition of these planets for mm -hmm. the first time in, in this at uh, this level of detail. So there's already a paper um, that I'm not yet involved with because I didn't do anything for it. So I don't want to get involved with it if I didn't do anything. But a team that I'm part of is is actually writing that paper um, and submitting it to Nature this week. Mm. Um, so I got to see all the fun stuff, but I can't tell you about it until it comes out. Um, but it's basically about exoplanet atmospheres. Um, and then the one I'm super excited about is um, this super Earth exoplanet that we've known about for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's a very hot planet. So just to give you a sense of it, um, it's orbiting its own star in 18 hours while the Earth orbits our sun in 365 days. Wow. So this is a planet that's really close to its star. It's really hot. It's over 2,000 Kelvin. What is that like? I don't know, three or 4,000 Fahrenheit. I work in Celsius. Um, mm -hmm. A very, very hot planet. We call it a lava planet. Um, and it's nothing like what we have in the solar system, right? So we want to understand what this planet is made of um, and eventually how it got that close to its star. So we're going to get some data in November from Webb uh, that's going to tell us hopefully a little bit more about what is the surface and the atmosphere of this lava planet made of. Mm -hmm. Is it similar to Earth's crust or is it completely different? Um, and so that's what I'm especially excited 
for. Um, Interesting. We have now, student here who's going to work on that and, and people at GPL. Now, when it comes to web versus the web telescope versus the uh, J, JWST, what's the big difference for you in your research for exoplanets? Is, is it, does it make a huge difference for you guys? So you mean, so Webb versus Hubble, right? Hubble, I'm sorry, my fault again, Webb versus Hubble. <laughs> um, just, just to clarify for the audience, Thank right? You. So yeah, so Webb is uh, significantly larger than Hubble mm -hmm. and more sensitive. Um, so two things, so the size of Webb allows us to see the atmospheres of smaller planets than we've ever been able to see with Hubble. Mm -hmm. Just because it's bigger, so we can see more detail, we can see smaller planets and their atmospheres. Um, the other interesting aspect of James Webb is the infrared uh, capabilities. So it can detect infrared r light um, to, to different wavelengths than a Hubble can. Mm -hmm. uh, so Hubble can do a little bit of infrared, a little bit of visible light detection, but Webb can go further in infrared. And that's where we see most of the signals from the molecules we're interested in going after in the atmospheres of these exoplanets. Like, mm -hmm water, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, methane, um, ozone, oxygen maybe. Um, so a lot of these uh, spectral features are observed uh, in the infrared and that's where Webb can really open the door to finding some of these um, features that Hubble just couldn't do. Mm -hmm. Now, in my research to get ready to talk to you, I had not realized that exoplanet discovery was a fairly new Field in that, in fact, the first planets that we discovered were just back in the early 1990s, and 95 was a real watershed year. Take us back to that time and where we are today. How far has the leap come in, in your research and being able to use these, uh, you know, new tools, so to speak, for your research? Yeah, so that could be a long story or a short story. I'm going to keep it short. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, in 1995 is when we had our the first detection of an exoplanet, and just a couple of years ago. The, one of the Nobel Prizes for Physics was awarded to Didier Queloz and Michel Maillard, who were the authors who discovered that first exoplanet, mm -hmm. which is called 51 Pegasi B, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so since then, so that was a big surprise because that planet was also in a very tight orbit around its star, mm -hmm. uh, orbiting in just three days. So pretty hot planet, wow. we call it hot Jupiter because it's large like Jupiter and very hot. <laughs> um, and since then we found more of these closing planets and that's been a huge surprise. Um, now we have, we think we have ways to explain, you know, how those planets get there. We still don't really know why our solar system doesn't have such a planet, mm. but they do seem to be very common elsewhere in the galaxy. Mm -hmm. um, and since then we are now at over 5,000 uh, confirmed exoplanets discovered. Uh, and and they're all kinds, right? Most of them are very different from the solar system exoplanets, from what we can tell. Uh, sorry, from the solar system planets, as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. um, but we still don't have a very good sense of how rare or common the solar system is, um, and that's because it's very hard to find some of the planets that have very large orbits. I see. And I won't get into why that's hard. Uh, but it is harder. So we are much more likely to find planets that are very close to their star than the ones that are further away. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the field now is really pushing towards finding more planets that are distant um, 
distant like like Earth, right? Earth is relatively distant from the sun, thankfully, mm -hmm. um, because that's where the planets in the habitable zone will be, and that's where planets like the planets in the solar system will be. Um, so that's that's where we're at now. Meanwhile, we're trying to better understand the atmospheres of all the planets, any of the planets that we can with Webb. Um, so we're basically making progress in, in finding planets that we haven't found many of so far, mm -hmm. and also better understanding the properties of the planets we do know. Um, and every time we make a, a big step forward in either of those areas, we find something that we were not expecting. You know, I think it might shock most folks that over 5,000 <laughs> planets have been discovered. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that's everyday news to most folks. I think it's pretty astounding. And, and could you explain the, the four different exoplanet types, if you will, so folks have a better feel for what we're yeah. talking about here? I don't know there are four. Um, okay, but mm -hmm. I'll try. Mm -hmm. yeah, and you help me out if I missed one. Sure. Okay, so, because we think of it in different ways than maybe than, than, uh, than other people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so 5,000, first of all, it is cool. It's not particularly surprising because um, we think, astronomers think that planets form easily around stars. Right. Maybe we didn't know that early on, but as soon as we started finding them almost around every star we, we searched, um, because in the end, we're mainly just limited by the number of stars that we've looked at. Mm -hmm. um, if we looked at, if we could look at tens of millions of stars in enough detail, we'll probably find millions of planets. Right. Um, so that is not terribly surprising, although it is a pretty nice milestone. All right, so the types of planets. Um, so I have in my mind kind of terrestrial planets, mm -hmm. kind of like Earth size. And then we have these super Earths. Um, which are maybe like twice the size of Earth. Um, and I'll get back to those in a minute. Mm -hmm. And then we have the sub-Neptunes, and the sub-Neptunes are kind of like a Neptune in size mm -hmm. and mass. So we probably, we think they're probably usually gaseous. Uh, and then we'll have the giant planets, kind of like Saturn and Jupiter. Um, and, and we've seen a lot of planets in between all of those categories. Okay. Um, now, to me, the really interesting one is the super-Earth. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you were going to ask me about that, so maybe I'll let you know. You're, you're, you're psychic. Uh, you know, obviously all roads sort of lead to a very certain thing for us that are civilians and not in the business of science, and that is, can any of these planets hold life? Yeah. And if so, how does one discover that? How does one determine that? What if one has an atmosphere? It, it, how, how active is the research on that end of the discovery scale? Yeah, so it's very, very active. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, <laughs> there are a lot of people focusing on very few planets. So um, the smaller the planet, the harder it is to detect. So we don't have most of the planets we exoplanets we know of are large, mm -hmm. and um, a smaller portion of them are small because they're just harder to find. It doesn't mean they're more rare. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they are pretty common. Small planets are more common than Jupiter-sized planets in the galaxy. We know that now. They're just harder to find. So, so for life uh, to exist on an exoplanet, we don't really know what it takes. But we think that a gaseous planet, so maybe mini Neptunes, for example, are out of the picture because they don't really have a surface. Mm -hmm. We don't know if they have a surface. But they have such a thick atmosphere that it's hard to imagine anything kind of walking around and living like things on Earth. Right. Maybe you can have life in the clouds of a mini Neptune or in its atmosphere, but that's starting to be really speculative and it's anyone's guess whether that's possible at the mm -hmm. moment. So we'll stick with what we know. So then we think that it should have an a surface 
with not too much atmosphere, kind of like Earth, um, a good temperature for liquid water to exist, and uh, make sure that there is liquid water in that on that planet. Um, and then beyond that, I think I think that's already a good starting point, right? Mm -hmm. So what can we find of those things? Well, <laughs> we can determine the size of the planet. We can usually determine more or less the temperature. Mm. Um, we can't be sure. So for the super Earth, it's really tricky because you could have a super Earth that's a scaled up Earth. So mostly solid and then a little bit of atmosphere. Mm. Or you could have a super Earth that's just an even smaller, like mini, mini Neptune. Right. So it's kind of like a very small Neptune that's a little bit bigger than the Earth, mm -hmm. meaning that it has a lot of atmosphere, probably not that many solids. Um, we can have a guess at where in that spectrum we are with the super Earth, but really what we want is the terrestrial planets, because those usually, uh, we're pretty sure, don't have an atmosphere for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the problem is if you don't have an atmosphere, or if you have a very small atmosphere like the Earth does, it's actually really hard to study that atmosphere because it's very thin and the signal that we get even with web is really weak. Um, so then to figure out whether there's water in that atmosphere or oxygen that might indicate uh, the presence of life or methane, mm -hmm. um, we could do that in theory, but in practice it's very difficult. So web might be able to do it for a couple planets, um, but it's going to be very, very hard. I think the next generation telescopes on NASA launches in right. mm, hopefully a couple of decades I mean, we're, will be the ones that will really help. We're talking hundreds, if not thousands of light yeah. years away, these exoplanets, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's only so much information with the, with the gear that we have now, exactly. as magical yeah. as it is. We're talking yeah. with, Diana, with Dr. Diana Dragomir. She's a professor at the UNM Department of Physics and Astronomy. And we're talking about uh, Webb and other discoveries. Now, I'm very curious, you know, there's been some marvelous photos that have come. I mean, absolutely mind-blowing. I'm just curious, as a scientist, what caught you the most out of the release of the photos that you've seen so far? Yeah, so for the James Webb photos, um, I think the first image that people call the deep-filled image, I'm just going to pull it up so I can have it in front of me because it's so cool. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's a really cool one. So most of you probably uh, hopefully have seen it. Um, so this is um, an image that shows a lot of galaxies uh, and a couple of stars. Yep. Uh, and I think what really got me is that every time I look at that image, I find something new in it. And then I go, you know, none of that has to do with what I study. And maybe that's why I'm so amazed by it. <laughs> uh, but what we see in there, so we see some of the oldest galaxies in the universe, galaxies that formed um, 3% of the age of the solar system. Wow. Uh, right, so, so if you think back, if today it's 100%, then these galaxies formed like really early on, 3% after the birth of the solar system. So 300 million years mm. after the Big Bang. Uh, and so we're getting their light today <laughs> in mm -hmm. these images, which is, whoa, mind blowing. Um, but also you can see, uh, some of you may have noticed that some of the galaxies look really distorted. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's due to dark matter that we don't see because it's dark and we don't know what it is still. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's acting like a lens. So the mass of the dark matter in this cluster of galaxies we're looking at is acting like, a, like an optical lens and it's actually distorting the light. 
hmm. of the galaxies that are behind the dark matter. Um, so it's, I, I think that's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, something that, you know, maybe for the more technically inclined, if you look at the stars in the image, those are the ones that have the spikes. Oh, yeah. They actually have, um, if you count, they have eight spikes. And that's because, well, so six, but then you've got another one. And that's because of the unique design of the web mirrors, mm. with the hexagonal, uh, the hexagonal shaped mirror segments. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that causes these, these, uh, this exact number of spikes. And so, so that's normal. That's expected. Any telescope will cause spikes. Um, but this spike pattern is unique to, to the James Webb mm -hmm. uh, mirror design. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more in there, but you sure. have to call a cosmologist to ask about that. You know, one of the, I saw some um, somebody break down some of the images we saw in that first image that we all were blown away at. And I think the one for me is the, the swirl that's similar to our Milky Way. It, it really just sort of caught me like, wow, there it is. This is so interesting to look at something like this from such a distance. It just really, really grabbed me. I'm just curious. Again, you're jaded and you're around this kind of stuff all the <laughs> no, time, not, but no. did, did it, did it, that, did that catch you as well? That particular image? I, I just, something about is that. Is that the Cartwheel Galaxy yeah. or is it a different one? Uh, Cause there was a really recent one that came out. Maybe that's not the one you're talking about, but it's the one I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a Cartwheel Galaxy. So it's kind of a big galaxy and there's two little ones next to it. I see what you, I know um, which one you mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for that one, sorry, I guess I'm just going to a different that's one, right. but it's uh -huh. too many. Um, for that one, what's really cool is that Webb can really see individual stars inside that galaxy. Yes, yes. And you can see it in the picture. It's yep. crazy. Isn't that something? And, and so this is a galaxy that actually experienced the collision um, billions of years ago. And we're seeing it still settling into whatever its final shape will be. Mm -hmm. Probably a spiral galaxy, like you said. Um, but kind of studying a galaxy that's post-collision like this uh, and see it uh, in this uh, this level of detail, um, we can learn so much about what, you know, perhaps is in store for the Milky Way right. billions of years down the road, right? If, we, right? if we were to interact with another galaxy. That's right. I have to say, I'm very proud of uh, the fact that UNM has a couple of folks involved with this. This is really makes it sort of interesting to me for the university. How is important, how, rather, I should say, how important is it for your department and folks in your department to be involved in something so cutting edge? Um, I think, uh, <laughs> I hope it's important. Um, so it, one interesting thing is that I've been here for about three years mm -hmm. and um, a, lot of, a lot of the folks here who work in astronomy use the fantastic very, very large array, the VLA, which is located in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so they, they study um, the universe at radio wavelengths. Uh, so that's a little different from Webb. Um, I guess I guess it's kind of a stroke of luck that I showed up just before the launch of Webb to bring in some of this science here. Right. Um, I think people are very excited and they're they're happy to talk about it as well. But oh. in terms of working with Webb data, that's that's really it's really me. Interesting. Just, you just uh, begged another question. I've been thinking about how big is this for the business the business of astronomy. I, I got to imagine there are young people that are a lot younger than us looking at this going, whoa, this is what I want to be involved with. This is the kind of science that really so. turns me on. Are you hoping yeah. for that result? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, so, so I have an undergraduate student that's going to be working with web data. And I don't know how many other astronomers are having 
are finding undergraduate students mm. work with web data, but I thought that that would be, you know, perhaps some people might think that that's a little bit over, you know, don't you want to give it to someone who's more senior? Right. Um, I, I think no, because if for a student to start already touching this data and analyzing it is, is kind of the way for them to develop their dream and, and see you know, why keep it away from, from the young generation right. when they could work with it right away? Yeah. Um, I, I hope it inspires people. I think there, I, I only hear good things about it. Even when I fly on the plane, people are like, oh my God, did you see those images from where? I'm like, yep. Right. <laughs> pretty cool, pretty cool, yeah. So I see a lot of excitement. We should probably note your colleague um, who couldn't make it with us today, um, Tony Hall. Um, yeah. If you want to mention a few words about Tony, um, he should probably do some note, that's for sure. He's done some interesting things. Yeah, so Tony uh, owned the company, I should know the name by now, because we've done a few talks together, mm -hmm. but he owned the company that uh, polished the web mirrors. So he knows a whole lot about what it took to put together web, um, and he's able to really give people a better sense of why it took so long <laughs> and what nice. all the steps are and why it's such a long and careful process to put together a telescope like this. Um, and so actually, if you uh, if, if your audience wants to know more about that, we're going to be at the Museum of Natural History of New Mexico on August 20th mm -hmm. in the morning from around 10 a.m. to about 2 or 3 p.m. And uh, I'll be there and Tony will be there and Tony will give a talk on some of these uh, more technical aspects of web and also show some, ah. some cool pictures in the planetarium, I think. Seriously, oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> so it should be pretty nice, yeah. So what's the uh, date of that again? That's, that sounds interesting. So that is August 20th. Did okay. Say that right? Saturday, it's a week and a bit from now. And I have it here as around 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Okay. I'll only be there till noon, but um, there'll be a lot of activities. We'll, we'll check in with you uh, just yeah. before to make sure we have all that yeah. information right. By the way, sure. to be fair to Tony, we should mention he, Tony Hall. He's an adjunct professor of physics and astronomy at UNM. Right. He's not just some guy that walked off the street. He's, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's, well, he did touch the mirror. He, like he likes to say, he touched every single one of the web mirrors. I would like to talk to him about I that mean, because that bit of the yeah. web fascinates me. The fact that you have all these mirrors adjusted to nanometers to account for the coldness mm -hmm. you had to have versus room temperature down here on Earth, that kind of thing. Absolutely fascinating. Anybody who had a chance to touch those mirrors, I'm all, I'm very interested in You know, I was with. talking with, with someone at the dock park about that yeah. and uh, about Webb, and he's like, it's, it's crazy how they have these actuators that can, can get the mirrors lined up at that level. And I'm like, I'm so glad you're interested. This is great. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And we should we should point out there are millions of nanometers inside of an inch. <laughs> so this is the kind this, of pro this is, you know. Uh, 0.1% of, of the thickness of a hair, I think. Right. That that's about the right analogy. That's so amazing that those kind of adjustments yeah. can be made in yeah. flight with all those different mirrors at the same mm -hmm. time and have them come out completely smooth. That's amazing. Dr. Diana Dragomir, I can't thank you the, very, uh, so much for doing this. I've, I've wanted to talk about uh, web for a long time now, all the hullabaloo going on, but there's lots, it seems clear that this, uh, this activity will give folks, your peers in your business, but just us as people, just to appreciate where we are, to put our place in, in our humanity. It's, just, it's become a big deal out there, and, and I'm, I really tip my hat to all of you in the business of it. It's, I'm actually quite jealous. It's actually pretty cool. <laughs> Thank you. I think good it's all stuff. just getting started. So Yeah, that's the good news. It is just getting started. Exactly right. 
Doctor, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Dragomir for taking the time to explain that to all of us. You can watch that conversation on our YouTube and Facebook pages right now. Also, thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, check out our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. If that doesn't work, we always repost them on our YouTube channel so you can watch it there too. That's segments, that's the entire show, things from the week that didn't make the show, it's all on our YouTube page. Also, if you missed them, our land's Laura Paskus has contributed some really interesting podcast episodes lately. That includes a discussion about healthy masculinities and how having an open-minded approach to the environment and life in general, really, can create some incredible opportunities. Stay with New Mexico and Focus, the podcast, for more conversations and discussions like that one. You really won't find them anywhere else. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, August 15th, 2022. This is New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.